if you reduce the uncertainty of the world, if you, in a way, predict what's going to happen with the environment, the payoff of this is very large. Now, how do you manage to do that? In ant colonies, you, of course, you have a system that needs to solve problems that have to do with maintaining the colony and eventually reproducing the colony somewhere else. For that, you need some intelligence that is able to gather information from the environment, probably to sense the environment in a special way. So you have to, to need to know where the resources are. That probably immediately creates the need for a distributed set of agents, right? It facilitates that to happen. And so you have the system, these little brains that form a big brain. Then it's us, right? The solid brains where we know from theory, at least, that because neurons are lo located in specific positions, but have connections that learn, that well, they participate in the learning process, you have almost an infinite landscape of possible states. So that gives you, in a single individual, the possibility of actually having pretty complex decision-making system. What does it mean to think? What are the traits of thinking systems that we could use to identify them? Different environmental variables call for different strategies in individual and collective cognition. What defines the threshold at which so-called solid brains transition into liquids? And how might we apply these and related lessons from ecology and evolution to help steward a diverse and thriving future with technology and keep the biosphere afloat? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers, developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on the show, we talked to SFI external professor Ricard Soleil of the Universitat Pompeu Fabra about liquid and solid brains, the scaling of cognition, criticality, contagions, and terraforming our own planet with synthetic bio. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all our references at complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us, including our upcoming program for undergraduate complexity research, our new SFI press book, Ex Machina by John H. Miller, and an open postdoctoral fellowship in belief dynamics at santafe.edu slash engage. Lastly, join us June 19th through the 23rd for Collective Intelligence, Foundations, and Radical Ideas, first ever event open to both academics and professionals with sessions on adaptive matter, animal groups, brains, AI, teams, and more. Space is limited. Apps close February 1st. Learn more on our website. We'll be taking a short break over the holidays. We'll be back the second week of January. Thanks so much for listening and happy holidays. All right, Ricard Soleil, welcome to Complexity Podcast. Thank you. So let's start with a bit of backstory to anchor the work that you're doing in a history of your own intellectual curiosity. I think that's always really interesting to me is what motivated you to become a scientist in the first place and what 
drew you into the kinds of research questions that you pursue in your work? Yeah, it's a kind of winding road because I was when I was a kid, I liked a lot nature. I could say was a kind of a naturalist. I discovered there was something called the theory of evolution when I was kind of 10 or something like that. And it was kind of a big impact, like saying, wow, there's a lot of logic here in, in life. Then when I was in high school, I was very accidental contact with complexity in a book that had been translated to Spanish from very classic work on towards the theoretical biology with uh, chapters by Waddington, by Kaufman, by and all of a sudden I realized that there was a connection between mathematics, which I kind of like it, and things like brain development, what happened inside cells, and, and evolution. So I, was, I got very, very curious, and I kept wanting to be a biologist, and I hated physics, I must say. But it was because the teachers I had, except that the last year before university, I had this amazing teacher who gave us a course on physics and I, I fell in love. And so I decided to do both biology and physics, which was a very good combination. And all over, it brings me into questions of uh, complex systems, of course. Yeah. So that's actually an interesting dichotomy that you explored in the talk that you just gave here on liquid and solid brains about the difference between biology and physics and how that difference is anchored in cognition. You know, that's going to take us on a, a tangent, but I'd actually love to hear you talk a little bit about that just as a way of kind of framing this stuff, you know, in terms of we're thinking about things that are thinking. Yes. There's a lot of interesting problems connected to that. And I mentioned this paper by John Hopfield where he made explicit mention that if we want to find out what makes biology different from physics, probably computation is one of the core ideas that uh, biological entities might have a lot of things that you can describe in, in terms of physics, but they have this special character. They take information from the environment, they process it and respond in adaptive ways. And that's a very distinct phenomenon. But the interesting thing is that it brings novel questions, like for example, when all this starts, when an agent in, the, in a prebiotic or um, early evolution scenario, when is information relevant? and how you identify the nature of information. And is a distinction between information and computation. Thus, this is all open questions. So actually maybe the right place to start then would be this paper that you wrote, Synthetic Transitions Towards a New Synthesis, where you know, you're talking about something we've discussed a couple times on the show, including with Kate Adamala, and it certainly comes up, it came up recently in the Multiple Paths to Multiple Life paper that Chris Kempis and David Krakauer wrote together. And they held a workshop around that topic recently here. So yeah, these questions of how do we get at what it means to be alive? What are the, to think of it in kind of like a functional sense, right? Rather than in terms of specific material instances, you know, or substrates. But then again, in this piece, one of the things that you talk about is the way that living systems early on in their evolution seem to have depended on environmental scaffolding and the way that you know some of these processes were outside of the system before they were internalized before they were made part of the default toolkit of what we think of as a living thing so i'd love to hear you unpack this paper a little bit and specifically around this topic because the question of the scaffolding came up again in your talk recently where you were talking about how it seems like ant colonies the vast majority of them form nests 
even in something that you know we might think of as like like a liquid or a fluid brain that there is this sort of it's pushing against or like utilizing kind of a static component i mean the paper is was an ambitious one because uh, what they wanted to bring is uh, the idea that we can look back into the major revolution transitions from a, what do i say the synthetic perspective whether or not we can actually build the transitions in relation with for example protocells this clearly um very important problems that related, as you were mentioning in a way, the, the thing that you have a scaffolding, that you have embodiment, things that very often in the literature are pretty much ignored. People that kind of make models of protocells that somehow replicate, but they somehow it's important. I mean, you have to get there against again the physics of equilibrium that you know favors closed membranes, but it's not very much keen to make them destabilize, which is connected with the fact you have to replicate. And that again connects with other problems, like for example, when is this something that gets into the control of some kind of information? Because uh, the previous scenarios that probably predate the origins of life, the origins of the first cells, are not made of cells that replicate in a very reliable way. And I even doubt that we should look so closely all the time into, into vesicles because uh, soft matter has so many configurations and maybe anything that predates these embodied protocells may have been totally different. Maybe foams with different molecules kind of helping each other to replicate, but still not as an agent. There's no agent really there. And we need to put physics there. We need to put the physics of how you make things destabilize and how is this connected with Darwinian evolution, which seem two very different distant things. But we need to make the connection. And in particular, embodiment is, is important. Embodiment because agents in living systems typically interact with an external world and that sometimes they engineer. And ant colonies engineer their material world. Somebody said that it's, they take advantage of dirt, which is a very malleable thing, and that's part of the success. And we humans, on the other hand, have also engineered the biosphere. And it's interesting that in both cases, we have an intelligence but again, the nature of the intelligence is different, right? One is liquid and another solid, both conquered the planet. So to that point, again, maybe I'm kind of taking a hairpin here, but you know, I've just been reading some of Simon Conway Morris's work. And you know, one of the things that he talks about, and you mentioned him again in, in your talk recently, and you know, he's this longstanding, very vocal proponent of the role of constraints and the importance of convergence in evolutionary processes. And for anybody who's been listening to the show, that's a pretty big thing here. You know, you look at the work of Jeff West and again, Chris Kempis and this notion that there's this enormous region of potential diversity that never gets touched because of the importance of those constraints. You know, again, you, you spoke about this in terms of theorizing a kind of a, like a morphospace of possible cognitive structures. And so part of this question of when major evolutionary transitions happen and why some of them are more common than others, I'd love to hear you link that to some comments that you make here about you know, something else that I've heard Conway Morris at Cambridge talk about, which is how often earlier instances of life forms seem remarkably more complicated and inefficient. If you look at jellyfish genome and how it's enormous. And so people expected the human genome to be even bigger. And it turned out it was, you know, far smaller, far more parsimonious. And then that seems related to a comment you make later about early theoretical arguments indicating 
that there's a maximum length for RNA chains scaling as the inverse of mutation rates uh, that uh, beyond this theoretical maximum, a system experiences a so-called error catastrophe, a phase transition where genetic information is lost. Again, maybe I'm trying to fold it all too much into one thing, but when I hear you comparing all of these different kinds of brains, one of the things that comes up is the work that was done here on the diastole and systolic activity of social scaling and informational scaling, like Hajime Shimao and and uh, Wolpert and Tim Culler and a few others wrote that paper where they were talking about how society in the Holocene seems to have kind of, it gets to a point where it can't manage its own informational organization and has to come up with a new structure. And so like you look through history and you see this kind of libraries, their cultural technologies emerge as a way of managing the coordination of all of this stuff. So I don't know, I just probably bit off way more than I could chew, but I'd love to hear you kind of dive into that and take it wherever you see as appropriate. Well, on the one hand, you know, one thing that is very clear, it, it took a while to understand that, that why very large genomes might not necessarily go into very extraordinary complexity. The jellyfish example, I think, is, is a very good one, but you find also in plants. We do know, and I think that the complex systems people have pretty good intuition about that, that the network is what's really important. The interactions are the things that create diversity of states and ways of connecting those states. I think that's what one clear thing. On the other hand, you mentioned the, the space of what I mentioned, the space of cognitions, which is one of my interests, whether or not we can we can make a map of the cognitive space. And since you mentioned humans, it's interesting that when you're thinking humans, uh, I had this conversation recently with Michael Lachman, and he was making a very good point that you'll say humans are very intelligent, but of course the cultural dimension is so important. You isolate a human, and I think Michael make a very good argument. You isolate humans, a human from language, from culture, and it's really nothing. So you have this huge brain that is essentially disconnected. In a way, you will say this is a stupid agent because it doesn't do anything really interesting. So in a way, that's why I think we are kind of a corner in this cognition space, which on the other hand has big empty spaces and we need to figure out why. That seems related to something that you mentioned in this talk. I always appreciate it when people bring in cultural references, you know, to, to anchor this stuff. And, and you brought up the Borg. Why is it that we don't see the Borg in nature? You suggested it has to do with these trade-offs between individual and collective cognition, you know, and there's that research that was talking about how the longer the memory of agents in a system, the more stubborn that system is generally to updating. And so the article was called Smarter Parts Make Collective Systems Too Stubborn. But that seems to, again, kind of get at how one way of thinking about the intelligence as something that's happening across scales. And so, you know, when I talked about this with Caleb Scharf, and we were talking about the way that we outboard cognition into what he calls the data ohm, you know, into all of our external computational, you know, the extended phenotype of humanity. That's one of those things, you know, we were becoming kind of in certain ways more specialized or more dependent on one another. Like you said, like the the individual person is pretty helpless. And so I'm curious if this line of thinking gets to the question that you ask in this synthetic transitions paper about why it is that 
some of these evolutionary transitions are so rare. And the kind of related question that you asked in your talk recently about why it is that, like you said just a moment ago, humans appear to be such outliers in this phase space of, of cognitive possibility that we're extending ourselves into the environment so much more than other creatures like us. Yes, I think that on the one hand is the idea of putting this space of cognition is because we really need to build a theory of why different cognitions, why some cognitions that we might imagine are not there. One of the things that I think it's um, important to have in mind is that when you look at this space, you have these big chunks of empty solutions, which doesn't mean that they are not unavailable. Maybe we can engineer them, but the evolution may have a hard time. But when you look in particular for to humans, it's an interesting situation because, uh, as I said before, it looks like kind of escapes from the general rule. For general rule, I mean something that we still need to figure out, which is this, I mentioned in the talk, the complexity drain. That, for example, when I was in Panama some years ago, I could see these army ants that you have. They, they move through the forest like a single organism. They are really amazing the way they are plastic in managing their environment. But individuals are essentially very dumb. I mean, they are blind. They communicate with chemical signals. And in the same rainforest, there's another colony of huge ants with big eyes, small colony. And it was interesting to look at them because it was like each one was more or less on their own, as if, okay, I'm, I, I have enough equipment to kind of make my own decisions. So this, this seems to be a trade-off. The trade-off that we see multicellularity, where many of our cells really lost a lot of potential because they have to be specialized. But again, we need to develop a theory and put ourselves within this evolutionary picture. So that's a good place, I think, for us to kind of fold this all together because you know, you talk about this, specifically this transition into multicellularity in this piece. And, you know, we've already talked about the environmental scaffolding and the specialization piece. And I'm thinking about Will Ratliff at Georgia Tech and how he's shown with the emergence of multicellularity in yeasts being a kind of a product of these, these physical relationships between the cells and the, and the uh, where they are growing. And then we've got you talk about a minimal form of multicellularity comprising of persister cells associated with cell subpopulations that spontaneously switch back and forth against multiple resistant phenotypes as a bet hedging strategy. This reminded me of what David Krakauer and I talked about back in episode 29 about when in systems you see conditions favoring specialists versus generalists. So I'd love to kind of hear you reach back into multicellularity and synthesize all of that. Some people said that this is a transition that's kind of the easy ones, because in a way we have been finding out over the years that being together could be helpful, maybe because you have a resource there and it's good to be together because we want to, if you attach to each other, we'll keep around the food source and we exploit it. But of course, you can bring the idea that um, it's more costly. And that's why uh, Will Ratcliffe's work is kind of, kind of synthetic multicellularity. It's been a groundbreaking finding. It shows you that under conditions that are easy to make in the lab, you can actually see the emergence of an entity. That is a kind of a proto-multicellularity in the sense that you don't have what we have in the modern multicellularity, which is cells specialized into becoming uh, spores or something that allows to build a whole thing. Here is more like you grow and you can break. But again, we need to understand what are the conditions that predate 
finally multicellularity. And you were mentioning this, this work that we did from some years ago. It's a modeling work, but it was a pretty much interesting result that when you put very simple things that work, cells that can attach to each other, one just takes something from the environment and the other specializes in removing a toxic from the environment, a stress source. And from pretty much simple conditions, we ended up into something what we call a protoorganism, which was that these cells evolve adhesion and they put together in a way that when you observe the, the final result, this is like an organism because you have an internal and an external state. So it's an external only organized in, in very ordered ways to deal with that. So again, you don't have multicellularity as we know, because there's no genetic control the process, not yet the, the life cycles, which is this really big question you have to solve. But you do have uh, something that reminds you a lot, uh, like an organism. And maybe that was part of, of the transitions, I mean, the, pre the landscape that predated the major transition. Now seems like a good time to just pay our dues to precedence for this work in A-Life. You know, you bring up Tom Ray and, and Tierra in this, and particularly like in the context of the acceptance of the possibility that sort of parasitic forms might be an ineradicable dimension of these kinds of systems. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how that links into all of this. Yes, yes. One of the things that I, I do believe, but still, I mean, we don't have yet a complete theory for that. It seems that parasites is an inevitable part of reality and in all scales, in fact. And in Ray's work, there was one of the nice results, uh, among others, was that uh, when he he put this digital biosphere in the computer, which was kind of a very early attempt at doing that, he found out that one of the first things that happened is that you evolve your agents that are unable to replicate by themselves, but they can replicate by using pieces of code from the other ones. Suggesting, and I think that is a very generic result, that parasites are inevitable. And I think that this has two consequences. That one is that um, that explains that I mean parasites are everywhere. It's probably something that is part of the opportunities of nature for cheating in particular. But also, I think that when we discuss about life in somewhere else or the alternative life that could have happened, and sometimes we say maybe what is generated by evolution is very path dependent. But I also believe that there are fundamental parts of the logic, like parasites, that are inevitable here or and elsewhere. One of the things that you talk about here is how, since the advent of computer viruses, that computer viruses themselves evolved towards more, quote, silent, apparently harmless designs based on their potential to integrate themselves within host machines where they remain undetected which is very sly. And so th this seems like a good place to peg into the paper that you co-authored with Jose Montoya and Stuart Pym on ecological networks and their fragility. This piece is in Nature Reviews. So yeah, if you can just introduce us to this way of thinking about the difference between the networks that we observe kind of generally and the dynamics that exist in ecological systems and why those things are different. If you can, like one of the things that you talk about here is how economies appear to have a kind of rich get richer dynamic. And when we look into sort of a rainforest, those networks don't display the same kind of benefits. So if you could, yeah, just a bit of background on thinking in this way and then what 
this review, what it reveals to us about the way that ecosystems are distinct and why it is that we see things like coming into balance, like uh, viruses evolving to not destroy their host organisms. Okay. Well, I mean, in network thinking, although we live in the, you know, still in the wake of the the first years of the century when networks became a revolution, good for us, complex systems scientists, network thinking has been in ecology since since the 50s. I mean, it's been, ecology has been a system science almost forever since it was constituted as a field. And network thinking has been around for a long time and shaping a lot of our understanding of uh, natural systems because um, one thing that was came about very early in the 70s with the work by Bob May and others is that even you can find ecosystems that are very, very different, there seems to be clear general laws like the relationship between the number of species and connectivity. You can increase connectivity, but if you do it, then you make the system more unstable. So you reduce diversity. So it's a clear dynamical trade-off. The same thing that we find out in we go to the rainforest. And we, for example, we sample all the trees in a in a chunk of the forest, and you'll see that most species are rare, and a few of them are really dominant. But then you move it into another place and you make the same kind of work and you find out that you have exactly the same distribution but the species composition is different which is saying that on the one hand there's very strong laws of organization that have to do with a very dynamical states but at the same time there's path dependence right that the, the exact way in which you organize the system depends on the past story and that has been a very guiding principle and the network principles that came out with small worlds and scale-free networks etc provided something more, which was something that we haven't explored before, which is the fragility of the system to extinctions. Uh, usually we think in extinctions like a, a given species gets extinct for some reason, but since the system is interconnected, you can have cascades of extinction. And this early revealed that uh, future scenarios of extinction have to have into account this, because when you lose some species, you can trigger events that accelerate the whole process. You know, you talk in this paper about compartments in ecological networks and, you know, how they correspond and sometimes don't to the boundaries between you know, habitats or the, the, uh, you know, the relationships, the feeding relationships between organisms. And then that word compartments, again, comes up again in your paper on synthetic transitions. You know, the, you spoke earlier about the formations of vesicles and of, you know, kind of informational boundaries around organisms. So yeah, I'd like to hear a bit about how you see there being kind of a general insight there in how the way that we can think about compartments in an actual organism and the compartments in an ecosystem or may not be different. And you know, whether the for these similar forces are driving that, you know, why we don't see compartments sometimes and well, it's a difficult question in one sense that the presence of, in a way, modular structures in biology can be because you have an embodiment. So you have something that defines a boundary and that automatically defines the, the insight where you can then organize other modules. And then if you want to respond into questions such as uh, when, when the real cells emerge and where kind of reliable systems able to experience their winning selection, when you go up into the ecosystem level, you do observe other kinds of organization. It's ecological networks have this nested structure. On the other hand, 
There are species that play a specially relevant role, different layers of uh, if you want a hierarchical organization. But then in this case, these modules or nested structure is not made of embodied objects. It's more like the dynamical rules that provide the right stability and the favor, for example, particular models in the system, which happens also inside cells for gene regulatory networks, for example. This other paper, I may be trying to a little too ambitiously to, to link into this, but you wrote this piece with Ramon Ferrer uh, Icancho on the small world of human language. So, I mean, you mentioned this term in passing just a moment ago. For those who are not familiar with small world networks, I'd love to hear you explain this piece and how this work can kind of be generalized with the work on ecological networks. And then, you know, from there, I have a question for you about modularity and the relationship between like linguistic and biological diversity, because there's this sort of, everyone can kind of plug into a tower of Babel kind of archetype or myth. And, you know, when we look at things like the way that it seems that the World Wide Web is not unifying in exactly the same way as it was anticipated to in the 90s and the way that you know we're seeing this fractious or entropic effect where these large systems are kind of breaking down into modular components. I look at stuff like Sam Scarpino and Laurent Abert de Fren's work and others, uh, Ben Althaus and folks that have been working on contagions not just biological contagions, but contagions of belief and behavior. I guess this question is ultimately about the nature of biodiversity and of food web relationships as an adaptive strategy to encourage robustness and resilience and to prevent catastrophic outcomes. Well, you give me a hard time, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, in relation with the small world of human language, that was one of the most exciting things we did in the lab. Uh, Ramon came with the idea that we're not thinking in the simplest way of building a network, which is to take two words as connected, if they appear one after the other inside one sentence at least. And from that very simple idea, we built this, this uh, huge networks from the British Corpus, for example. And we found out that uh, two amazing things. One was that the system was a small world. You navigate into a repertoire of really large number of words. I mean, even people might not think about that. Maybe we're sharing 50,000 words or maybe more, except that we don't use most of them most of the time. That excludes, of course, professional football players. But the thing is that we find out that despite having a corpus of um, you know, thousands and thousands of words, the distance you have to jump in terms of going from one word to another in the network was less than three. So it was really easy to go from one part of the other. Then there were some words that were extremely connected, words like the preposition, for example, that you will say, well, they they don't have much content. But what we found, what I think is, it was confirmed by people, by other people at the same time working on semantic networks, is this beautiful result that Yes, okay, you have this architecture, et cetera. And what's the big lesson here? Well, you can navigate very quickly through the network. And that, in a way, it doesn't explain, but it provides some understanding of why we are building sentences when we talk so quickly, uh, having in mind that if you think in the syntactic structure, you maybe should stop thinking each time who comes after the other. But they have that you have these hubs that make navigation so quickly 
it's probably some of the big advantages of the complex language that we use, which is ambiguous. And, but ambiguity again is connected with the, the hubs, the hubs that allow you to run away, run quickly. Of course, this opens other questions, which is what is the network and how is this connected with the neuroscience part of the story, which we don't know. And you mentioned diversity and language and ecosystems. And it's been really clear from a very long time ago that we share a number of uh, common things in terms of how languages emerge, how diversity of languages is sustained over time. And even they are connected. I mean, the places in the, in the planet where you have uh, most diversity uh, is where the places where you have more diversity of languages. And again, they face the same problems. They are getting extinct and extinct quite quickly, but for reasons that are different in a way. Languages that are very large and dominant, they tend to kind of absorb the speakers of the other languages. And so that's the, the main path to extinction. Whereas, of course, species suffer our direct pressure and to nature. So actually, that, that reminds me to double back to this question about what it is about the nature of ecological networks that inhibits the sort of rich get richer phenomenon that we see in uh, economics, where nodes with more connections kind of draw like attract more and more connections to themselves. Because it seems like, I guess, you know, when I'm working on this show and I'm having, you know, conversations with SFI economists and I'm thinking about the emergent political economies program, then on the one hand, we've got people like Dwayne Farmer that are thinking in terms of market ecologies and are applying ecological thinking to this stuff. On the other hand, it seems relatively clear that at least at the time scale that matters to us as human beings that we're thinking about and behaving in the economy in ways that are ill-informed by these kinds of ecological dynamics, you know. And so you look to Catherine Collins's episode and and her plea for us to think about this stuff in more of a biomimetic way, to draw more lessons from ecological systems into economic activity. Because I mean, the question is, is it the case in economics that the rich really do get richer? Or are we just looking at it on such a narrow time scale that, you know, we're missing the fact that ultimately these systems are going to sort of balance themselves out again in a way that makes human beings as super generalists a little bit more modest in the way that we relate to the rest of the biosphere. Clearly, there are very general rules in terms of the dynamics that apply for both, to both ecology and economics, right? You identify competition, you can identify cooperation. You see that diversity plays a role in the economy to make economy more dynamic. But of course, this is a very different context in terms of what's the payoffs for things. In the real economy, clearly the rich gets richer in the worst sense, uh, that in particular individuals or particular companies get all the profits if you want. And then, in fact, when we were working on self-organized criticality many years ago, I remember that one of the obvious things that we observed uh, when looking at examples of this phenomenon was that the economy is probably moving all the time into this kind of unstable state. And one of the predictions clearly from the model is, is the Zip's law of wages and everything. Because, I mean, if you don't control the system, you get into that state. In ecology, I think that the picture, this kind of increasing returns in ecology, I think the picture is different. Because you do have this, also this uh, power distributions for biomass, for example. And you have also power distributions for species abundance, as it was mentioned in the rainforest, in 
marine habitat everywhere. So this again, these universals. But even though there are some species that are keystone that are maybe, for example, ecological engineers, they have a really important role in controlling energy and matter. The turnover is very large. So as I was saying, there's a very dynamical process that also in the long run involves uh, red queen effects. Talk a little bit more about that, because I, I, I'm trying to not assume that everybody knows. Yeah, the red queen is this idea that was formulated many years ago by Leigh Van Balen, where he said that when you look at natural system, you tend to think in species as something separated from the environment. You know, you, you evolve because as an environment, you have to adapt. But in fact, every single species has to change also in relation with the rest of the ecological network. And the simple example is if I'm a prey and my predator gains some advantage in detecting me, I have to evolve, I have to co-evolve and I do something else, right? Uh, maybe be less visible or be smaller. And this armed race happens in all the network. And one of the consequences of that is that you should expect the species to get extinct sooner or later. So every single species in the long run, everyone gets extinct. And that kind of dynamics is kind of an illustration that, you know, even if you might think that one species is now is kind of a winner, it's just a transient phenomenon. And also when you go into the real world, maybe the winner in one place is a different one from the winner in another place. So in that respect, also heterogeneity and the, the role of space in ecological dynamics makes a big difference because the economy also has become a very global phenomenon and all this kind of been, has been erased. We may be dog-legging it here, but it strikes me that we've been dancing around this key concept this entire time that I think we ought to just make explicit here, which is the concept of criticality and the actual state of the connectedness of these systems and how that relates to the phase transition that you explore in your work between liquid brains and solid brains and how it relates to these major evolutionary transitions. So if you can break that down for us, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, criticality, I mean, it's a, it's a concept that has been becoming more and more central in many ways. I mean, in the 90s, it became kind of a source of excitement because there was the idea that systems that perform, it was an idea of Chris Langton, that perform computations might benefit from being close to a critical state, a state where you, you have order on the one hand, which you need for memory, but this is already what, what you need to rearrange. It's a very abstract concept. You need to rearrange information and manipulate it. And then at the same time, Jim Cratchfield came with the idea of this edge of chaos again for systems. And if you measure the computation in a system that is at the edge of order and disorder, you find out that almost every measure you can think that defines computation uh, has a peak. And also at the same time, Perbach came with the idea of self-organized criticality. The idea that you can actually evolve into that state. Uh, this idea has been shaping a lot over the years. And it's been interesting in the last years where we have a lot of data, a lot of very good information that criticality uh, or very close to criticality states seem to be generic in the brain. So the brain actually uses, at least in, the, in, the, in terms of the dynamical state, it sleeps close to a critical state that RNA viruses live on the error catastrophe, right? Which is the transition from the order and disorder, or the meaning that you keep information, you, you experience selection, and disorder, that you, you're unable to store information anymore. Essentially, you will go to, into extinction. The same seems to happen in unstable cancer. And in behavior, the way flocks of birds 
are able to manage to be so flexible. You see, actually, you see kind of, it's good intuition. You see order and disorder. And when you measure that precisely, the way they interact and you use tools from statistical physics, you realize they live in the critical state. So being in the critical state, at least for cognition, is something that prepares you to respond very quickly while you are you have uh, order inside, right? It's not a, a response that is totally disordered, but that provides a lot of flexibility. One thing that is open, and I have my, my interest is actually to, you think in the brain, of course, you have this very dynamical state, but uh, if, when you think in terms of the cognition that is performed by the brain, how is this connected? Is this just something that is kind of an overall dynamical state that is useful for going fast into responding? Or is there anything deeper, which might even constrain the way we, we organize our minds? This is great because this gets to a question that I was able to explore a little bit with Melanie Moses way back in episode 10, you know, talking about when evolutionary conditions favor a liquid brain, like a colonial organism, like an ant colony, or when you can actually scale individual organisms up to, you know, something the size of a human being or an elephant without it breaking apart and how that is related to when we had Deborah Gordon on the show and she was talking about, you know, the cognition of ant colonies. This has been kind of an ongoing theme about, and again, you just addressed this about responsivity and it's like the inherent pace of the environment and, and, you know, the pace at which a system has to adapt to it. When I had, again, calling back to episode 29, David Krakauer talked about the coronavirus as having an identity that was more like a cloud in space rather than a point in the way that we typically think of a species. And I've heard, you know, a number of scholars from the humanities kind of using this as an analogy for the conditions of modern human psychology, like under the conditions of the complexity and the pace of modern life. There's this whole question for me about when a swarm versus when a self in these ways. And to get back to a synthetic bio kind of a question, do you think that this helps inform us about things like where are the use cases that we would actually design one strategy over another? in order to achieve specific results. Yeah, that's something I want to know. One thing that I, I will say is that if you look for a general principle that is kind of an umbrella for the solid and the liquid is as complex systems, I think clearly it's kind of a, a driving principle here. Why to develop complexity, especially cognitive complexity? Well, because having a brain is a costly thing. Having intelligence in general, maybe, right? Because you need to maintain a system that is able to process information in a, in a way that involves more than just sensing and responding. But if you reduce the uncertainty of the world, if you, in a way, predict what's going to happen with the environment, the payoff of this is very large. Now, how do you manage to do that? In ant colonies, you, of course, you have a system that needs to solve problems that have to do with maintaining the colony and eventually reproducing the colony somewhere else. For that, you need some intelligence that is able to gather information from the environment, probably to sense the environment in a spatial way. So you have to to need to know where the resources are. That probably immediately creates the need for a distributed set of agents, right? Facilitates that to happen. And so you have the system, these little brains that form a big brain. 
then it's us, right? The solid brains where we know from theory at least that because neurons are lo located in specific positions but have connections that learn, that well, they participate in the learning process, you have almost an infinite landscape of possible states. So that gives you, in a single individual, the possibility of actually having pretty complex decision-making system. So you see kind of two different ways of going into that principle, managing information, reducing the, the uncertainty. But the question is, I mean, is there any other intermediate state that we might create in the lab? Because it seems so far that it's kind of the two solutions. But again, we need to be careful because uh, when we look at biology, what we always find out is exceptions and layers, right? Like Fisarum, right? which is this huge and it's a huge cell. So, but some people says I don't like to call a cell, but this is is a single entity with uh, thousands of nuclei inside, which behave as a single organism that changes shape as it searches in the environment. It's kind of a, an alien, really an alien organism. And eventually, when when the big thing is to find out which place in the space that is around has the most interesting nutrients, and then it changes its shape to actually take advantage of that. So the computation is the shape, which is kind of a really different picture from the standard cognition, right? So that's what in a way uh, makes me think that um, maybe some evolutionary paths to things that we haven't seen were not possible, but that doesn't mean we cannot maybe build those solutions. So that seems to link directly to comments I've heard David Krakauer make about the possibility of designing dynamic national constitutions or organizational charters that respond to variations in the pace of their environment and the, the demands on cognitive load by basically folding and unfolding and having shorter or longer regulatory sequences depending on the needs of the moment. But the comments you just made make me wonder if there is not some kind of inherent obstacle to that in evolution that has made it rare and kind of difficult to identify or to comprehend that this is, you know, and kind of begs the question. And it's kind of related to drop another pop culture reference. And, you know, there's like, I think most people who grew up or like lived through the 80s remember like Voltron and these these notions of like the people riding these robots coming together into these enormous multicellular type robots and of course you know you've got people that are like Sabine Howard they're working in robotics labs that are doing these things where you're kind of playing around with this notion of a um, you know a biphasic structure right that can kind of go back and forth between it comes together as a single individual when it wants to achieve it, a particular task, but then it kind of, and you see this also in agile thinking and organizational dynamics, this notion of the teams that sort of self-assemble in order to achieve a particular project. And then everybody kind of, you know, retreats back into the woodwork to work on their own stuff. So at least it seems like a lot of people are thinking about this in kind of convergent ways and finding ways to deploy it, but there are these challenges that are kind of akin to the challenges faced by generalists in a really mature ecology, which are like challenges of the efficiency of systems like this. And I'd love to hear you speak to that. Yeah, I think, well, at least to the context of robots, I, I love that you bring this because I always thought that technology, the understanding of technology, and you work with that with Don Farmer and Niles Eldridge uh, a while ago, 
technology is kind of an experiment of evolution, a parallel experiment, where you brought before the virus, the computer viruses, and it's interesting that computer viruses, of course, have been created by humans, and so there's no real natural selection, not uh, things like mutation, but we have managed to introduce all of this. As we face challenges with the computer virus from our observer, follows kind of the path of natural viruses, right? From just infecting to, to be hiding. So technology offers a lot of opportunities to explore these things. And you mentioned robots, and I think it's interesting that the liquid solid part of the story could be seen in the robotic arenas, swarm robotics, and what you say, humanoid robots. There's a lot of work on these two areas. And I can't avoid to think, it's interesting that humans they could be doing anything else, right? Anything that is not an agent that is very complex or a system that is made of small robots, simple robots that collectively do interesting things. As if the engineering approach to that brings, again, the solid and the liquid. Why not totally different kind of agent architecture organization? And that brings the convergent idea that maybe technology also is discovering that is only essentially solutions. After your talk the other day, Carlos Gershenson asked you about gaseous brains. And that's actually something that one of our followers on Twitter asked me to ask you about, because it's obviously the analogy suggests a third state. And I would love for you to dig back into the answer that you gave Carlos about what are we even looking for? And is it even possible to have this third state cognitive architecture? The short answer is a conjecture, of course is that, you know, we, we define liquid as something that reshapes itself within a given container. Isn't it in a way what happens with ants, for example, that they have this scaffolding and they have all these aggregation dynamics that ensures that the system, it's all the time searching, but getting back into the colony state. A gas, by definition, is something that just escapes, that doesn't take the shape of the container. It just tries to go always uh, outside, right? Everything separated. And I guess, and I think this is a very important principle for complex organized systems, aggregation. Aggregation is part of the story. Again, of course, it's always a conflict between search and in a way getting together when you think in swarms, but you need that. And that's consistent with the liquid kind of metaphor, but I will be surprised that the gas metaphor applies somewhere. Yeah, it's not really gonna be doing much thinking if everybody's headed in a different direction, right? Yeah. So this seems like a good time to bring us to applying all of this thinking. Recently, you gave a, an earlier talk I'll link to in the show notes, and, and you've written a few papers on the ecological crisis and coming up with synthetic biology response to that crisis, terraforming the earth, basically. And I'd love to hear you talk about this and perhaps you know start by outlining the problem as, as we see it, if this problem is kind of a euphemism here, um, you've got this paper you wrote with Simon Levin, ecological complexity in the biosphere, the next 30 years in Filtrans B. And this makes the case, I think. Please set this up for us. Very unfortunately, we live in this period of time where the decisions we make about the biosphere and our, about climate are going to be decisive, mainly because there's something that very often is I wouldn't say the ignore, but not mention it too often, is, is the presence of potential tipping points, that complex systems usually have breakpoints when you push the system in a parameter space where you change something slowly, but the system responds quickly at some point. Everything points in this direction, not only global warming 
itself can create one of these points of no return. But ecological responses to change are very likely to be threshold-like. This, for example, is uh, something we work on with, with experts in the field in drylands, which is 40% of ecosystems. These are very stressed systems and they are experiencing changes that might bring some of them into desert states or very degraded states. What I think, that in mind that they are water keepers, they are really essential for a lot of ecosystem services and that more than a third of people in the world live there. And this is clear as something that we have to address. And I'm not saying that this, the technological fix is the solution. I mean, I think that technology has to be part of it, but we need to change a lot of things, right? So no one that listens to us think that this is kind of the magic thing. But the fact that the risk perspective has to be changed because you have the tipping points requires to start to think in whether or not we have been engineering the planet already. So we have actually modified almost everything and we are doing everything wrong. So it could be a possibility to use synthetic biology. So modifying species and ecosystems, but that's not an arbitrary decision. It's something that we have a whole theoretical framework to think how to do this in such a way that the engineering we do provides a source of help. Imagine, for example, in a dryland that you put a, a new species that comes from something that was there and helps retain some more water. This some more water in nonlinear systems can be amplified and you can help the ecosystem to get away from the tipping point. That opens the door for a number of things. We hope that this is some kind of idea that eventually we can actually test in the lab, but it's gonna be necessary because we are running out of time and we need to really take seriously the fact that the time window is shrinking. I mean, we're finally here now. The paper that I just found immensely interesting. You wrote this with Blay Vidiella in iScience uh, Cell Press, Ecological Firewalls for Synthetic Biology. I mean, the conversation I had with Kate Adamala led us right up to the gate of this paper because the question that she seems to always get from people and the question I'm sure you get a lot is how do we avert a kind of Michael Crichton scenario, you know, an Andromeda strain or Jurassic Park type thing. And it's kind of a funny path-dependent outcome of the way that chaos and complexity sciences were actually brought to public attention by techno-thriller authors like Crichton that have everyone convinced that the uncertainty inherent in these systems and the inability of people to accurately model all of the possible consequences and like second and order consequences of a new technology make us destined to undermine our own efforts in doing this. And yet this paper, it brings a level of nuance to this conversation that I've seen no one else actually bring. So I would love basically for you to lay out how it is that people have been thinking about this traditionally in terms of top-down control and how what you and Vidiella are proposing brings a whole new angle to this conversation and like specifically what are the kind of mechanisms that you're suggesting here as possibilities for applying synthetic biology for this kind of eco-engineering project without releasing horrors into the world yeah well let me let me first say that one of the interesting things that the sociology are surrounding this is that when people ask uh, how do you know i mean or as about what are the unintended consequences of this? I always answer that 
I can't answer this question because it's, it's non-scientific. Because since the 70s, because there was all this idea that whatever with the recombinant DNA, whatever we do and release is going to be a threat, that something really bad can happen. And it was supported by some scientists, actually, without not knowing really if that's the case or not. Immediately came with all the idea that um, the consequences are going to be bad. You have to put moratoria. And essentially, there's no research in that. Nobody knows. That's the thing that is true. So it's like uh, if you ask me, do you think it's life in another planet? The vast majority of scientists will say, yeah, I think it's reasonable, right? But you, I believe that. It's not proof of that. So what, what happens with unintended consequences? The, the truth is that the few things we know is that if you release something, some genetically modified strain in nature, it dies immediately. It dies immediately because it's a completely hostile system and because biodiverse ecosystems are able, because biodiversity is a, is a firewall to invaders, right? These invaders that succeed and that we, we have created, and that's the real threat, that succeed, the rabbits in Australia, whatever, are organisms that are large biomass, and it's usually they are introducing an environment where you have already degraded everything. Australia is a good example. I mean, we should remember that we first kill all the predators. We introduce millions of sheep. And in that habitat without predators, the rabbits, of course, had a lot of opportunities. It was, it was Disneyland. And the thing is, um, the unintended consequences, I usually discuss this because we know that, as I said, was saying, the vast majority of invaders fail to invade ecosystems that are healthy. A few of them succeed, but they just remain there. That's kind of our target that you are controlled. And most importantly, the engineering that we want to do has something totally different from the standard engineering. We don't want to predict we'll have this ecosystem. What we want is to provide the source of making biodiversity to keep there running because biodiversity is an emergent feature and is an emergent feature that provides resilience to the system, provides, as I said, the mechanism for rejecting invaders and that is kind of the target. It's a little bit in the on the lines of David Krakauer's emerging engineering, right? That is, is a different, it's a philosophically different perspective. And the paper on ecological firewalls and another paper I did with one of my my PhD students, Victor Maul, go into this direction. That you don't need to think, as it happens in genetic engineering, that people have been thinking in how do I control a microbe that I introduce in, in a patient in the microbe in the gut. How do I control that? And it's been a lot of work at the beginning, like creating suicide kill switches, like uh, if that happens, the cell will kill itself, like as if everything was a problem. When in fact, and that's the point of these papers, in fact, ecological interactions can provide the source of control. You can put something in the system and it's gonna be stabilized by the system, it remain there. Biodiversity is not going to be modified. And we have a lot of evidence for that. And so you can do engineering, an engineering that helps the system. Again, as I was saying before, providing the conditions for making more more resilient, keeping diversity, which is totally essential. But ecology itself provides the firewalls, right? You are not going to go and do whatever you want because that's not what a rich ecosystem allows to happen. So that's why we think that it's possible to do the engineering exploiting an emerging property, which is biodiversity, and maybe helping to at least gain some time, right? That make the systems 
get far away from tipping points. So the, there are some other areas where it seems like we can see these kinds of dynamics at play. And so I don't know if you think this is useful or not, but like I think about you know the shift in thinking between an obsession with antibacterial soaps and then I've heard conversation about the notion of actually like encouraging healthy bacterial communities on human skin so as to prevent invasions. And, and then at a second level, you're also not encouraging the development of antibiotic resistance. It's funny because maybe this is more of a question for Stephanie Crabtree or Jen Dunn and these folks who are thinking about this in terms of archaeoecology, but it's common practice for people to pride ourselves in a kind of seemingly increasingly kind of self-loathing way at our ability as a species to have dominated this entire planet, to have invaded every ecosystem. And yet it strikes me that there's still a kind of a question mark actually when we look into human prehistory about just how much we were actually responsible for the extinction of prehistoric megafauna and how much that, you know, our ability to invade the world had to do with instabilities due to climatic shifts and us sort of capitalizing on the perturbances in these networks. I don't know if you feel like any of that's worth speaking to, but. Well, it's a complicated question, but um, the thing is that it's very likely that humans um, kind of succeeded in part of, you know, being equipped with a cognitive apparatus that helped to start to using tools, et cetera. But the challenge is posed by an environment that is, that is fluctuating. I think, I don't know how much evidence for that, I think it's reasonable to think that was kind of a, the challenge that pushes the brain into getting into more plasticity in a way, to find solutions. And that that was probably a runaway effect, uh, a combination of our upcoming uh, cognitive apparatus and and the potential for environment to, to put us into travel. And probably both things were, were relevant. My last question for you, a big one anyway, is about the specific mechanisms that you explore in the model in this ecological firewalls paper. And you talk about resource consumer dynamics, mutualism, parasitism, niche construction, and indirect cooperation. And I'd, I would like to just invite you to walk through how you imagine and why you imagine those mechanisms as candidates for preventing these unintended consequences from synth bio. Reading the the rigor of this argument put me strangely at ease, and uh, I appreciate that. And I'd like to spread that that ease to listeners as much as possible. <laughs> well, well, I think one of the ob objectives of using these different kind of potential scenarios of exploiting standard ecological interactions was to show that you can actually exploit almost all kinds of things, right, from competition to cooperation, and even interactions that this in dynamical terms you read as parasitism. So it's a whole diversity. It's not, you don't, you don't have to confine it to one. Each one of these firewalls, which essentially is a set of ecological interactions that you have to deal with when you put a synthetic organism, have to do with things that we know well. When you exploit a cooperative interaction, cooperators need each other. And so one population needs the other. And that can create kind of a lock-in effect, right? That you, you get under control you do the function and your population is stabilized. And that comes, comes just for free in a way for the nature of interactions in ecology itself. So in a way is, I know that there are attractors 
why not I can put myself in one of those attractors, especially if I can remain there, be there when I'm needed and keep the rest functioning. And that's, that's the, the big key. So that's why, why we believe that this is something that might actually work. You talked about biofilms in this too. And because we were talking about scaffolding and structure and all of that earlier in the conversation, I'd like to hear you just say a little bit more about specifically how you imagine the biofilm in terms of the way that, you know, we can look back into like the very earliest stromatolites and things like this for ideas about how to handle with environmental toxicity and so on. Yeah, biofilms are, are very much widespread. I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of microorganisms who actually live in, in biofilms, which is a reminder also, again, that this is not multicellularity, but this, again, kind of a, a scaffold that brings the advantages of kind of multicellular organization. And within that kind of system, you can actually manage to the resources and prepare maybe to other events. We know that some biofilms um, in different places can actually capture toxins. And it's part of what we know, even for example, in urban environments, which is one of our targets also for terraforming, because cities can be seen as a kind of huge bioreactors. And the point that we have made also is that you could use all the biomass there to actually do something, right? Why not to use something that nobody likes, like sewage, to engineer that right? and provide some functionality Making the cities in a way, they are part of the problem, making part of the solution. And then just lastly, because I think this was a really, <laughs> sorry, no pun intended, but a concrete example of a use case for this kind of stuff. You talk about the you know synthetic parasitic firewall and the possibility of engineering organisms that fix CO2 by filling cracks in concrete, which is something I talked about with Kate something I've heard Rachel Armstrong talk about as a potential solution to the decay of Venice, Italy. How exactly do you propose that this would work? The concrete crack for us actually was kind of a revealing thing because it comes from the, or the original starting uh, engineering projects in synthetic biology. This idea that in a concrete crack, you have an environment that is not very nice for bacteria, but you can find bacteria that live there well. It's a huge problem for infrastructures. And the idea is if I could bring bacteria there that have been modified so that they secrete a mixture of uh, some biomolecule and calcium carbonate, and this has been done, uh, they could believe there, they fill the crack. And once they fill the crack, since they are prepared to that, but not for the external world, they just die. Right, and I, I always say this is kind of a North Korean motif, right? That you 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 function and die, but that opens the door for many things. I like to mention Venice because for many years I've been I've been associated with the Center of Living Technology there, and one of the things that we actually in the early beginnings of this terraforming idea, we had this project where the Laguna of Venice could have been a target, because you have there all kinds of problems related with toxicity, with eutrophication, and a lot of potential candidates that species that live there where we can engineer a microorganism to get rid of toxins. And I still think it's a very potential target, but we still need to convince people that, you know, this is something that has no trouble, that because the fear is still there and uh, we need to have a long run yet to convince that, you know, they have good arguments to think that this should not be a problem. Just in closing, it, it maybe this is a little too speculative, but thinking about all of this stuff, again, you know, given 
the rich seam of literature that looks at networks in not only ecosystems, but in the propagation of beliefs and behaviors and economic activity and so on. I can't help but wonder if you have any thoughts in closing on how this work on ecological firewalls might apply to some of the questions that have been raised by uh, people like Joe Bach Coleman and and uh, you know Carl Bergstrom and others on getting a handle on social science right now as a crisis discipline because ultimately our ability to coordinate for climate solutions depends on us being able to coordinate politically and yet what we see now is you know like the people like Mirta and Galasic and Henrik Olsen and Josh Garland who have worked on the sort of systemic problems of modern digital communications maybe there are ways that we can induce ecological firewalls in our human social systems that allow us to coordinate more effectively. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a topic that is not my own research, but I'm really interested. And it's been interesting to see that on the one hand, you can build uh, a network architecture for misinformation. So you can actually build a network, see how parts interact, see how actually some kind of rich club phenomena emerge in the system. But it's a tricky thing because, I mean, you can build the firewalls in the sense that you can actually try to, on the one is target the sources of misinformation, target the spreading. But of course, we face this problem that now because of the of the echo chamber effect, right? You could think if I identify a node that is a keystone in this, in this propagation of misinformation, which is in itself is a strange question, it's a strange concept, isn't it? It's not information, it's the deterioration of information. So even if you do that, the problem is that the community that is around is likely to not accept the kind of arguments, the rational arguments that you're bringing. And you know, this is actually, I think, one of the really fundamental applied problems of complexity the polarization of society, the role of misinformation. And there's a number of people, Stephanie Forrest and others that are working on, on that. And we have a huge challenge. And I think that whatever is find out in the future, we'll need to probably have kind of new conceptualization, or maybe we need something else that comes to our help. And that may be artificial intelligence, something that brings a way of managing this landscape that has these really big conflicts. They have misinformation, you will say as a rational person that, yeah, but they have arguments against that. Why is this not working? Because on top of it is the fact that uh, the communities are extremely polarized. So how do you manage to do that? And I think that artificial intelligence, without being an, an apostle of that, right, but may provide new ways of attacking the problem in a distributed manner, in ways that can break what the physicists will say that the symmetry breaking phenomenon, that has to be reversed in a way. So you probably have to find out emergent solutions. And emergent solutions might not fit into a, a kind of a political scheme, but I believe that. I mean, it's something that uh, I hope is solved because we really need that to be solved. New ways of flocking as people, yeah. Ricard, this has been awesome. Do you have any final thoughts or questions you want to leave us with? Well, now that I'm here, I always insist in most of my talks at the end of, that I think that one of the big problems we need to solve in complex systems has to do with things that we have found that we call universals, right? i just give you an example. 
because it's deeply connection with the problem of cognition, what's possible, what's not. And it's the fact that in language, for example, we have all this Chomsky's grammar, right? A very formal, well-defined scheme where we can actually fit some universal features of language. But then in the physics and complex networks, we have found all the universals, right? Scale-free networks in language, uh, organization, uh, modularity, all kinds of things that repeat again and again in every language. So what is the link? What is the connection? Because we are talking about exactly the same kind of entity. And one scheme is very computational, going into kind of the deep uh, structure of cognition. The other is more into universal properties that you see as a, in statistical terms. But we come from the same system. And in nature, we have a lot of times this the grammar organization, the measures we do that we can interpret in terms of you know, distributions or modules or whatever. But we still don't have the link. And finding the link, I think, will solve a lot of the problems we have, in particular for finding out general laws for complexity. Well, that's a call to arms. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.